The psalm of the day is Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 24. We are reading verses 36 through 49. Hear God's word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we gather around your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would speak and give us understanding of these great and mysterious events that took place on this Sunday morning long ago. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In his best-selling book, The Things They Carried, Tim O'Brien chronicles his turbulent experiences in the jungles of Vietnam, dodging death and juggling the horrors of war. O'Brien arrives at a very curious conclusion. Listen to what he writes. You feel wonder and awe at the setting of the sun, And you are filled with a hard, aching love for how the world could be and always should be, but now is not. And it is this moment, this hard, aching love 
for how the world could be, and perhaps even should be, but is not, that informs Christians' worship on Easter Sunday. Because it is in the middle of this broken and tired world that our Lord Jesus stands before his disciples in his resurrected body and proclaims peace to them. He stands scarred, and those scars affirm that the world is not what it should be, that the world is a broken place, but yet he stands risen, affirming what the world one day will be, risen and made new by God himself. But let's be honest. This is a strange claim. Dead people don't rise. None of us have seen this before. We've not seen someone get up out of the dead. It's not a common part of our experience. And many people in reacting to this have come up with different theories of what happened and what actually took place. And some who have no interest in Jesus really at all, they have just said that the early church fabricated this. They made it up. And others who have some interest in Jesus have said, well, the disciples just used the word resurrection to refer to this spiritual event in which they saw Jesus in a spirit after he died. And so resurrection is just a code word for some kind of spiritual experience. But the thing is, is that these two come up somewhat short of giving a full explanation The first reason is this, is that the gospel accounts don't really bear any marks of a fabrication. One key indicator of that is the appearance of women at the tomb of Jesus. It's regrettable, but it's true that in the first century, women were not considered to be credible witnesses. And so it took two to three witnesses to confirm anything in public. And what happens in the accounts of Easter Sunday is that women are the first at the tomb, and the Christian church recorded that and told the story that way. And friends, I can tell you, if you were fabricating something in the first century, this was suicide. This would do your story in. No one would believe it. And so does the presence of women point to a fabrication? Or rather, does it point that there was something mysterious and strange, and the early church strove to write it down as it happened, to record that something mysterious had been at work that morning at the empty tomb? And the second reason that this interpretation won't do is that the word resurrection simply doesn't refer to a spiritual event. It doesn't refer to disembodied bliss after death. You see, in the ancient world, particularly amongst the Greeks, disembodied bliss was one theory of what happened after death, and they had lots of words to refer to that. And one of those words was not resurrection. Judaism was the only major world religion that believed in resurrection, actually, and they were laughed at and mocked for it. And when you talked about resurrection, everyone knew what you were referring to. It referred to re-embodied life after death. That is simply what it meant. And this is why Jesus, when he stands in front of the disciples, challenges them to touch him. Then he says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Give me a piece of fish. This was resurrection. A physical body brought back from the dead on the other side of the grave. And so to reinterpret what happens here does not really do justice 
to the gospel accounts either. And so Christians persist in believing that on the third day, God brought Jesus' dead body back to life. It was new creation, the Spirit of God raising him up from death. And this is the core claim that the Christian faith rises and falls on. This is what the Apostle Paul says, if it's not true, then we're still in our sins and we're fools. This is the core. In other words, what this means is that Christianity isn't just about nice people gathering to hear nice things to try harder and to do better. Rather, Christianity is about a profound message about what God is doing in his world to right the wrongs, that the world is not what it could be or should be. And God is now rolling up his sleeves and he's getting involved in order to make it right, in order to bring the world as to what it could be. He will make it that way. And so we live with this ache. We live in a broken and tired world. But what is it that the resurrected Jesus claims to offer us? We have said that he will make the world what it should be. But what is it exactly that he claims to offer us? And there's two things that we'll look at this morning. The first is this, is that he offers us a quiet conscience. Jesus stands amidst his disciples, and he offers them peace. Peace to you. The church has picked this up in its own liturgy, but Jesus offers peace. And this peace is tightly wound up with the idea of the forgiveness of sins. You see that Jesus tells the disciples that they would go to all nations proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. And when Jesus arrives amongst his disciples, after all their failures and their misunderstandings of his kingdom, he announces peace. This was the forgiveness of their sins. It was that they were in right relationship with him, that they had wholeness and well-being of life. And when honest, we recognize that we are right there with the disciples. That the only thing wrong with the world is not the people on the outside, that we are part of the problem as well, and that our conscience burdens us, that it's heavy and it weighs us down. But the resurrected Jesus promises to offer us peace and to quiet our conscience through the forgiveness of sins. We are deeply fractured people. No matter how good a show we may be able to put on, but we're riddled through with sin, and we desperately need this quiet conscience, this peace, that can only come through Jesus. Bo Geertz, he's a Lutheran pastor and novelist. His most famous novel is The Hammer of God. It's worth reading. He tells the story of a self-righteous Lutheran pastor who was trying to come to grips with his own sinfulness. It was an early Sunday morning And the pastor received news that one of the parishioners was dying. He had had a heart attack in the night, and he was in his last moments. And so the pastor, his name was Friedfeld, was to go visit Franz on his deathbed. When he arrived, there wasn't much that he could do. Franz was already unconscious, but he was murmuring and muttering things, and occasionally he would blast out something. And he was reliving some kind of scenes in his mind from his past. Franz's daughter was extremely embarrassed 
because much of what Franz was mentioning was prior to his conversion. Franz was known to be a godly man, and yet what he spoke of was just awful. The daughter couldn't quite handle it. And this led to a crisis for Friedfeld as he listened to these somewhat audible confessions of this man's prior life. He started to panic, and he asked the question, what if this happened to me? What if the pastor and the people were gathered around me when I was on my deathbed and I began to mutter my own confessions? Listen to what Geertz writes. He saw it before his mind's eye in grotesque reality. He imagined the crowd around his bed wringing their hands in horror at his blasphemous imaginings. Improper rhymes he had learned as a boy, coarse and sacrilegious words he'd used as a youth, sensual pictures that still plagued his imagination. Not to mention his conceitedness and his eagerness to keep up appearances and make a good name for himself, all of which filled his soul. What if all of this should well forth in his dying moments? And then finally, in the climatic moment, And even now, you are thinking about your own honor. This accusation, spoken inwardly to himself, fell upon his soul like the lash of a whip. He was then so wholly concerned about his honor and success in life that death frightened him only because of the evil consequences to his reputation. It's a wonderful passage that takes us into all the different turns and corners of sin. That sin is not just those indiscretions that we commit in our youth. That sin involves our motives. Sin involves the way that we want to cover up and look good to others. That sin is deep and profound. It's a disease that we can't cure ourselves of. And Friedfeld is asking the question, where can I go? Where can I hide? His sin was becoming such an incredible weight and burden that he needed to find some relief. In Romans 4.25, Paul writes of Jesus this. It says, Christ who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And Friedfeld finds the relief of his burden. And he finds it in these words that Christ was delivered up for our transgressions, but he was raised for our justification. In other words, Jesus' resurrection is tied to our justification. Justification is simply being made right with God. It's a legal verdict that's rendered by God on our behalf. And it's announcing that because Jesus is up from the dead, the righteous one, the one who is innocent, who death could not hold, and because he is now at God's right hand, All who believe and trust in him, we too will be made right with God. And friends, this is the source of the quiet conscience. That Jesus has borne the burden of our sins, that we don't have to hide and we don't have to cover them up. That we are fractured and riddled people and that we can live honestly with that. That we can confess our sins to God knowing that the only cure for them is Christ and his righteousness. And only what he can give to us that he is the one interceding for us. And only when we stand in him before God are we truly forgiven and quiet and peaceful. And that's what the resurrected Jesus offers to all who live in a tired and broken world. He gives you that peace 
when you look to him in faith. The second thing that the resurrected Jesus offers is that he offers to deliver us into the world we all want. We do live with this echo of Eden, the echo of a world that is pristine and pure, that's free from the burden of sin. And we often try to make it, and we put our best efforts towards it in this life, but we find ourselves incredibly frustrated And every effort that we give towards it comes up short. And we live with this incredible fear, though, of death. And that oftentimes our most industrious moments are trying to stave off the sense of our own mortality. O'Brien, in the same book, has a beautiful passage where he describes the young soldiers who were trying to deal with the reality of death. Listen to what he says. They used a hard vocabulary to contain the terrible softness. Greased, they'd say, oft, lit up, zapped while zipping. It wasn't cruelty, just stage presence. They were actors. When someone died, it wasn't quite dying. Because in a curious way, it seemed scripted. And because they had their lines mostly memorized, irony mixed with tragedy, And because they called it by other names, as if to insist and destroy the reality of death itself. And that is the key line. Calling death by other names to ignore it, as if we could destroy the reality of death itself. That the fear of death is real. We live in a culture that pushes death as far away from our present reality as possible. We live for the fountain of youth to make our bodies young and sleek and strong as long as we possibly can, and then to hide away the dying from everyone's view. We have an inability to deal with it frankly. And friends, this is where the Christian gospel provides such great hope. Because there is a one-to-one ratio in this room, and I speak of myself as well that every one of us who drew a first breath will draw a last one. This is just the reality. But the gospel offers a way of interpreting and understanding that last breath that you will breathe. And it actually offers hope on the other side that in your death it will not be the last breath you breathe, that our Lord Jesus will raise you again, that he will breathe breath upon you once again, just as God did with Adam, and reorganize your dust and bring it back to bodily form, and you'll inhabit a new world. It's so important in the midst of our own mortality to know the promises of the gospel, to believe them, to find them true and trustworthy, Because the fear of death can lead you down so many different ways of life in which you try to squeeze out everything you can in this world. And you run about and live your life pursuing every pleasure that you can because you think it's all that you got. But the resurrection of Jesus tells us something else, that it's not all that we have. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 writes these words. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him 
even to subject all things to himself. It's interesting to note because Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, but we are here waiting for our Lord Jesus, that he will return, and then he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his. You see, for the Christian, heaven is a big deal, but it's not the end of the world. When we die, we go to be with God, but the great big show at the end of all things is when God returns to remake everything and raise our lowly bodies to be like Jesus' glorious body. That is Christian hope. That's what the future is for the Christian. This is what God lays out in front of us. Several years ago, a friend asked me how my transition from Washington, D.C. to Jacksonville, Florida was going. And he was just noting, he said, it had to be a pretty massive transition for you. And in the course of the conversation, he asked what were the things that I valued about the new church family that I was a part of. And without blinking, I knew the answer immediately. I said, it's very valuable to me and Melissa that our children are in a multi-generational context. That this is one of the greatest gifts that this church offers to my family, and it's so good to be back inside of that multi-generational context. I said, why is that? Why, why do you find that good? You pastored a young church in which you were one of the oldest members. It had to be fun and lively and good. And I said it was, but there were never any funerals. This conversation stopped. You know, much like the look you're giving me now. What? <laughs> Never funerals. Why is that a good thing? Why do you want that? And friends, the reason that I love a multi-generational church is that it has the whole span of the Christian life in front of it. It has birth and baptism, and it has dying and death. It has the words that are announced at the graveside in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We put this body in the ground. Because, friends, that's what my children need. That's what I need. I need all of that discipline in my life to constrain my faith, to remind me of where my hope lies and what is important in this life. That the gospel, if it doesn't meet the real issues of life, if it is just about giving us joy each day, if it's not applied to the real difficult weaknesses that we face, then it's not a real gospel. But friends, this is good news that meets us in our mortality. It meets us at the weakest points. It meets us in our deepest tragedies, and it offers to undo them. And so that hard, aching love for what the world could be and always should be is answered by the risen Jesus. He offered his hands and his side because in his body he had absorbed all the brokenness of the world. And because he was innocent and righteous, God raised him. And he offers the promise of a new world, that that same resurrection power, that he is the pioneer, the firstborn from the dead, and that God will lead all the world in that triumph that belongs to him. Friends, that's the answer to our ache, to our longing for the world we all want. Entrust yourself to Jesus. He's the one who can deliver on that. 
and his resurrection is the down payment of it. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for the great hope that we have in the resurrection of your son, that he, the righteous one, was willing to go down into death on our behalf, that we can have a quiet conscience and to also have the firm and certain hope of the world to come. We give thanks for these things. We ask that you drive them home into our hearts, that we would be believing and trusting. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.